This is a talk by Todd Corbett titled, Working with Imaginary Distinctions, recorded February 24th, 2013, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. This morning I have a little prepared talk for you, and um, it's actually a, kind of comes out of a number of questions that I've been getting over the last year. I've been doing the Foundation Studies group this year, and a lot of questions about emotions come up because emotions are the thing that seems to be the most off-putting part of this whole business when we feel really despairing and really disturbed, really upset. We don't like it and we want to get away. And so this is, this is probably one of the most important pieces of the spiritual path that we have to engage with. So today I want to not just bring up the, this um, essential problem with emotions, but I want to point out the, the essence of emotions, which is the fact that they are imaginary, that they are imaginary distinctions and sets of distinctions that arise in consciousness. It's an energetic play. And it does not seem that way when we're being uh, inundated with them. So before we get started with uh, this meditation, or with this discussion, which is a meditation, essentially, today, um, we'll do a little short meditation where we just allow ourselves to be still and quiet, resting with the breathing, the moment-to-moment -moment sensations of breathing, and then after oh, maybe oh, five minutes or so into it, I'm going to ring the gong again. And when I ring it the second time, just once, I'm going to begin to give a little guided pointing out of, of some uh, things which are present right now, which we just usually we tend to overlook them. So I'm going to point these things out in this, during this meditation. And then when the meditation is done, I will ring the gong twice to let us know that we're done. Okay. So this meditation that we're about to begin, the, the silent meditation, we generally, at the center, we like to encourage folks to use just the sensations of breathing to kind of ground attention. And once we have grounded attention into the moment-to-moment -moment sensations of breathing, we'll notice that the mind will move off into thought, and it almost always does, usually sooner rather than later. And uh, we may have a, a little period there where we're just resting with the sensations perfectly, but then there will be a thought. And that's okay. We want thoughts to arise. Why? Because they are arising. And so we notice the thought and we just return to the naked moment-to-moment -moment sensations of breathing. It's a very simple little exercise, but if, if uh, we look closely and we really apply ourselves, we discover that it is actually difficult for us, at least initially. 
And the difficulty arises with the fact that this mind, this chattering mind, has a mind of its own. It runs all by itself. We think we are in control of this mind, and so we're always trying to control it. But in fact, when we sit and uh, allow our attention to rest with our breathing, it's off in thought. We don't want it to be off in thought. We're saying, no, I want to be with the sensations of breathing. But no, it's off in thought. So the real value here is allowing attention to notice that it's off in thought, to recognize that, and then to gently return. Even if it happens a hundred times in a 20-minute session, that's a good meditation. If you can notice when the attention moves into thought, you're aware of where attention is in that moment. That's what this meditation really is designed to do, to allow attention to remain aware of where it is. Because when we're thinking and thinking and daydreaming all day long, attention just gets lost in this trance of thought. We don't know where it is. We don't know where we are. And we define ourselves through this sort of inattention as a separate individual self, isolated from a world of form, a chronic process of struggle. So we have this simple meditation. We just put our attention on the sensations of breathing. And we just rest. We recommend sitting upright. Even standing is fine. Uh, but, but being with good posture, upright, putting your hands in your lap or somewhere where they don't get in the way, where they're not fidgeting, and where your eyes are just resting in front of you anywhere. Just let a soft gaze be present. But the eyes are open. And the reason that we like to have the eyes open is because as we develop this ability to be present with what is, we want to be able to recognize what is in the visual field. There's no reason to close the eyes. There are some meditations in which we do close the eyes, but for this particular meditation, we leave the, the eyes open, and we just rest there. And so I'll ring the gong once to let us know that we're beginning. I'll ring the gong a second single ring um, to let you know that we're beginning the, the pointing out phase of the meditation. If you wish to follow our format, stop your player now and practice these instructions. When you've familiarized yourself with these instructions, start your player again and continue with the program.
I'd like you to close your eyes. So with your eyes closed, notice the forms that are just there. Maybe they're just murky, flowing, energetic, flickering. But on a backdrop of what? Bring to mind your home. Your home, the kitchen, the bedroom, the front door. And visualize yourself walking from room to room in your house, in your home. And notice as precisely as you can as you walk from room to room, different items that are in the room that you're passing by. Notice you feel a certain way when you think of certain objects and visualize them. Some things you really like, some things, yeah, they're not so, so great. We don't really care one way or the other. Some things we maybe don't like. Now notice all of this is just consciousness. All of it. The images, the home, kitchen, front door, every facet of it, including the liking and the disliking of things that you see. The mystics tell us that all that arises is vast open space without bounds. Now with your eyes closed, is that your experience? There's just this web of textures and flickerings. You might even feel kind of encased in it. And yet, if you notice that all of this is just pure, naked consciousness, the the oppressive nature of it, the sense of it being an encasement, is gone. All of these flickerings that arise all of these feelings that arise are imaginary distinctions arising in consciousness. And when we discover this, they no longer trouble us and we are no longer striving for them. 
So see if you can see the distinctions themselves. What is, what is there that gives you the impression of a thing that would make you believe that it is something other than just pure naked consciousness? Now with the eyes still closed, notice the sense of something outside of you just now. The sense of there being a room here. The sense of an inside in me versus an outside out there. It's the sense that the sense of one of these, like an inner, gives the sense of an outer. The sense of an outer gives the sense of an inner. Being aware of this, can you feel that it is all just one boundless space of knowingness in which this is arising? Inner and outer arise in this boundlessness. So now with your eyes still closed, Remember the images of walking room to room that we did a few moments ago. Where are those images now? Of course, we can be doing it again, but these are all brand new. Those previous images are gone. Any idea of a previous one is arising just now. In fact, we can't verify without thought that those previous ones ever existed. And now even these thoughts, these images are gone. We can say, no, they're still here. But as soon as we are aware of them, they are already gone. It is just an echo. It's brand new, always new. Now open your eyes look about the room. Notice the visual field full of labels and perceptions. All of these are imaginary distinctions. All of them. Notice in their arising how concrete they feel. And in that very moment, notice how concrete you feel. 
this sense of concreteness that seems so concrete. It's just a rising and passing. It has no real existence. It is a quality of consciousness arising just now and passing. Gaze at a static object and ask yourself, where is the distinction between the object and the awareness of it? Where is the distinction between the knower and that which is known? Where is the dividing point? Now we have the distinction, the end of the meditation. It's just an imaginary distinction. meditation, did you notice anything different than when you first walked in? Is there something different that you noticed? Something that kind of may not be able to say what it is, but it's sort of a a, a kind of an illumination of things. And this is the power of meditation. The power of observation. If we allow our attention to rest on our experience rather than being caught up in thought and emotion, we begin to discover something other than our ordinary experience, what we would call the mundane. We tend to gloss over what is real and fixate on these imaginary distinctions. And we are experts at glossing over. And that is because there is a set of distinctions that we don't want to see. We do not want to see them. We might say we want to see them. We come to do spiritual practices so that we can see all these things. We want to wake up. But when it comes down to seeing certain things, we don't want to see them. And we have all kinds of good reasons why that is the case. 
And that is because these distinctions are the ones that surround the sublime nature of the story of I, the sense of self. It's not just a story. It's something much deeper than a story. It's an identification, a deep belief that I exist. I exist apart from a world. And the world is concrete. And we are concrete. So when we're talking about a belief of this kind, we're not just talking about a set of ideas. We're talking about attachments. Deep, deeply held attachments. Identity, identification with a set of images, very much like the images that we were looking at in this meditation, guided meditation. Imaginary forms that arise and have a, a seemingly have a meaning and they separate themselves from the one consciousness. It's wonderful that they do that, by the way. It's just the problem is that we hold them to be real and we hold them to be real in an emotional, grasping kind of way. So they are emotionally based, but they are still imaginary. Just like in the meditation, we are interested in examining what it is that we are doing that makes these things seem so real to us. It makes us believe the sense of self is actually something concrete. Now the problem with uh, this whole thing is we're like we're like the uh, the lion that, that was raised with a flock of sheep. We we really believe we're a sheep. We you know it's just obvious. There's no question. We're hanging around with a bunch of other sheep, and we're well we're a sheep and. We're never going to know we're not a sheep unless, what? We look. We have to look. But if we never, it never occurs to us to look, then we don't look. But fortunately, we, we, it does occur to us. Sometimes it takes a long time. The reason we look is because we are not enjoying ourselves. We don't feel quite right. We don't actually feel like a sheep. We feel like something else. We don't quite know what that is. Now, you know, the analogy breaks down here, but, but it's a good one. It kind of gives you a sense of what we're going through, you know? And, I mean, that story, the, the original tale was, you know, there's a lion that's up on the mountain, and he's looking down, and he's seeing this, uh, this lion hanging out with sheep, and he's just mortified. He can't believe this, this lion... He's thinking it's a sheep. And he's just, you know, he watches him day after day and he just can't stand it. Finally, he goes down and he grabs him by the scruff of the neck and he says, what is wrong with you? You are a lion. You are not a sheep. And the guy goes, I am a sheep. I, you know, bad, bad. And he eats some more grass. But then, they, then the, the, big, uh, the big lion grabs him and takes him over to the pond and holds his head above the water and you can see a reflection. Oh, I am a lion. For us, it's a little bit more tricky. 
<laughs> but it's a good analogy, but it does break down. The problem we have is we just absolutely do not want to look. We don't want to look, and it's not clear when we look what we're seeing. And so what it really means is that we have to keep looking. It's not like we're going to see it once and get it, although that does happen. But generally speaking, we have to keep looking, and then looking, and then looking again. And then when we get tired of looking, and we go, oh, you know, this is irritating. I'm tired of looking. That means you just need to be looking some more. And you keep looking. You want to look at the, the one that's tired of looking. You just keep looking. We want to get away from anything that does not affirm our sense of self. Now, of course, practice is just the opposite. And that's why a lot of times people will start practicing and they get to a point where it's like, this isn't helping me. I want something that's going to make me feel better. But that is not what practice is really about. Ultimately, I could say that, yes, absolutely, that's the case. But a lot of times when you say that, then people start striving to feel better through practice. And that's not what it's about. It's about actually feeling the nasty stuff that you're feeling and just letting it be there. When we do that, that's how we discover that it's fine. But we have to actually do that. The Rumi shed some light on this when he says, and Joel uses this quote a lot, but it's a great quote. He says, a nothing has fallen in love with a nothing. A nothing at all has waylaid a nothing at all. So basically, we have fallen in love with this image of ourselves. And we've fallen in love with it in a very peculiar way. Everything that we see in our life, all of the objects that arise in our life, manifest that sense of me. Because they cannot exist without me. Strangely. Our knowledge of the world is actually a knowledge of our self. Self reflects the world. World reflects the self. So these nothings have been defined as somethings, but they are really nothing. And because we feel this nothingness as isolation and separateness in ourselves, we feel vulnerable. There is this underlying sense of existential insecurity, this, this worriedness. And we can't escape it because it's, it's our identity is flawed in this way. It's nothing. It's just nothing. Well, not nothing in the way we think nothing is. But nevertheless, from the point of view of the self, it's absolutely nothing. So what do we do? we have to think ourselves into existence. We have to do it constantly. It's not something we can do once and be done with it. Because as soon as we stop thinking and emoting about who we are, there's nothing here. There is nothing. There's just vast, open space, consciousness. But we don't know that. It just looks like nothing. So we have this constant movement towards security. We want to be secure. We want to feel certain, certain about our life. Certainty. We want to be happy. 
And this is how a nothing gets to feel like a something. But it's transient. It's always transient. And we begin to notice that when we start doing these practices of meditation. We notice the transient nature of things. Self must keep moving to sustain this image of self to make it seem real. And this is a powerful movement. We have a lot to do. We want to do it so that we can finally relax, right? Well, that time never comes, but we don't notice that. We just keep striving. If we were paying attention, we would notice, this is endless. It's just going on. I keep having to affirm myself. But somehow we ignore the endings of things. When it does stop from time to time, and it does, it, it, it can't, we just can't sustain it all the time. And when it does happen, it can manifest in one of two ways. Well, three ways. We can ignore it completely. Or we could be terrified by the fact that there's nothing. Or we can just experience an epiphany. Ah, whoa, what was that? But that's the problem. Because then we start... Even if it's a good thing, we start thinking about it and wanting it to come back. That was so great. What was I doing? Okay, I was going out to get the paper. And what did I do? I, I kind of stubbed my toe. So then it's like, huh, that's not it. Hmm. Maybe it was getting the paper. No. But what it was, was it just happened because we stopped running the story. The mind stopped. The emoting stopped, and there it is. But we're really good at this whole process. We do it, we continue to do it, we've been practicing it. Practicing, we're very good at it. And so meditation practice is really the opposite kind of practice. It's, it's the practice of letting go of all of that and recognizing how all that is happening. And in the process of recognizing how it's happening, it sort of stops happening. It's a funny, it's a funny process. But what we see then is that all of our thinking and all of our movements to sustain a self begin to create beliefs, deep-seated beliefs about everything. But the primary linchpin belief is the story of I. But it's just a belief. It's like Santa Claus. But you know, we some of us, some of us believed in Santa Claus maybe for quite a while. I don't know. I know. I remember. I did. Santa Claus seemed like a pretty cool guy. And then one day, I heard some kids talking about that it was just it wasn't true. It was just, and it was. Horrifying. I was. It was dreadful. It was like, no, they're wrong. And I remember going to my parents. This is a. This is an emotionally. You know, Santa Claus is a big thing to me when I was five or so, whatever. I believed it, and I, so I went to my parents and I asked them. I go, well, the kids are all saying this, and, and you know, I never. I always thought Santa Claus, and they told me. I said no. 
You know, we've been meaning to tell you about this. <laughs> it's not true. And that was kind of a grieving process that took place. I'm sure some of you have had that. If not with Santa Claus, with something else. Because it's all that way. It was very real, and it was very sad. The thing about beliefs is that whatever we believe can be disputed. And that's important. And if you look at your own experience, if you have really strong beliefs, question them. Question them. We can get really strong beliefs about spiritual stuff. And they can be a huge problem for us. Have an idea about it's all consciousness. It doesn't help you. It's a great pointing. It helps in that way. It's something to bring attention to look. But then, let it go. It's nothing to cling to. If you cling to it, it becomes a problem. It becomes a veil, an obstacle to actually recognizing the true consciousness. Simone Weil, or Simone Weil, I don't know which to call her. Joel called her Simone Weil for years, but her name is Simone Bay, pronounced in French. Um, anyway, it's just one of those little things. You know. <laughs> She's a Christian mystic of the last century. She had this to say about security and belief. She said, in what concerns divine things, belief is not fitting. Only certainty will do. Anything less than certainty is unworthy of God. And that's it in a nutshell. That's really it. We need to be certain. Though belief is comforting and, you know, even functional, beliefs support us and they're very useful. But there comes a point where the belief becomes a kind of denial. And, you know, whenever we deny anything, or the story, or whatever. It's obscuring something that we want to see, maybe. And in the case of spiritual work, it definitely is something we want to see. We don't want to be stuck in denial about it. So, we cling to identity with these imaginary distinctions but we remain insecure. Even though we maybe have bolstered up our beliefs pretty solidly, there's still this insecurity about them. We've built them in response to this insecurity, and so they really are a manifestation of insecurity. Even though they seem real solid to us, we feel real you know, comforted by them. At the base of them, is insecurity. We feel that insecurity, so we keep striving to make it perfect. We just want to get it better, so that. but you see, that never comes. Actual certainty about what is does not arise from beliefs about things, about anything. Beliefs do not confer certainty and will never do that. Certainty arises through a recognition of what is true. 
what is already true. Ideas and emotions can arise within certainty, but certainty does not waver. It doesn't matter what it is. It's like clouds can arise in the sky. The sky is not affected by it. So we can't decide to be certain about something. If we, if we try to decide to be certain, we are striving for certainty. So how then do we discover this certainty that is already here? True security. Well, the way we do this is we stop trying to find security and we start examining what is driving the movement to find it. And that is insecurity, uncertainty, unhappiness. Examining insecurity is the way to discover true security. Examining it. But this is exactly what we avoid. And this is because we have made this erroneous assumption. And that is that we can actually get rid of unhappiness or insecurity. And we, we're starting to see we can't do that. But we make this assumption, it's very powerful. We think we can get rid of our existential insecurity through striving. And we can't. We can't. So how would we then allow insecurity just to be? How would we recognize that they are imaginary? Once you recognize they're imaginary, you're not trying to get rid of them. You're just noticing they're imaginary. And you can rest with them. So we have to look at them. We have to feel them. We have to allow them to be present. And not not, you know, allow them to be present so that so that we're like doing a kind of a bargain. Okay, I'm gonna let them be here and then when they're done, I'm gonna feel better and I'm not gonna feel insecure. It's not that. It's allowing them to be here forever. They are here now allowing them to be present exactly as they are, not wanting to change them, and noticing how when the mind wants to change them, that is just resistance. That is striving for security. That is striving to feel better. And you notice that, and it keeps you grounded in that, that sense of, of you know, moving away, recognizing it just as it is, and we're not moving away. We're no longer, we're no longer striving. And when we're no longer striving, we will have glimpses of certainty, moments in which it's like the clouds part, and there's just seeing. There's no, there's no striving. There's no thought about striving or no thought about what's being accomplished. doesn't matter because we recognize what all that is. Imaginary distinction. 
we notice that the slightest movement out of this moment towards some other moment creates a whole host of imaginary distinctions. Time. The imaginary distinction of time is created in the movement to feel better. Strange. But that's what it is. Because me, I want to feel better. But I don't feel better now, so I have to do it when? Later. I'm reaching for it. I'm striving for it. doesn't work. And we see that more and more. Now, through this process, attention, if, you know, and we, we really do need to have a kind of a continuous day-to-day committed practice of paying attention. What we notice is that attention becomes more and more sublime through looking. Through noticing, first of all, how we're going to strive and we see, oh, that's the striving. Oh. And we just rest. We relax. And then we see the little things about, am I doing this right? Yeah, I'm going to get something out. And we see that. That's just more of the same. It's just another phase of it. And we just, and so in the process, attention is becoming sublime. Very subtle. What we're doing is we are manifesting our nature, which is, pure consciousness, pure awareness. We're allowing awareness to actually be what it is, what it already is, aware. We're looking. We're allowing everything just to be. And when we aren't struggling to resolve insecurity, we're, we can't say we're insecure. We're not. We're, we're content. So we discover two things in the imaginary nature of insecurity. First of all, you discover that you can't escape what is imaginary. If you try to escape what is imaginary, then you're just creating something. All you need to do is recognize it's imaginary and the whole thing stops. And if you do deny an imagination, you try to push it away, you try to get rid of it, what happens? You, you are there. You are created. The story of I is created in that very movement. Self is defined moment by moment by the activity of denial and grasping. When we observe this process, as we've described, we see striving self is just conditioned process. It's arising and passing away. It has its own agenda. Just as when we sit in meditation, we want to sit with our breath, and we're off in thought. Rather than doing battle with being off in thought, we just allow our attention to go with it. 
And when we do this, we allow our attention to be with whatever is arising. The story of I, it evaporates. There's no, there is no story of I. There never was a story of I. I mean, there was the imaginary story of I. But there was nothing ever that was concrete. So I just had a little quote here um, from the close from Zen Master Singstan. And he tells us, the way is perfect like vast space where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. Indeed, it is due to our choosing to accept or reject that we do not see the true nature of things. So are there any questions or comments? Yes, Ken. Going back a little ways in your uh, talk, you know, where you're going to fetch the newspaper and you're still your toe, um, describing that as, as a suspension of a story, the discontinuation of a story or forgetting of a story. Are you asking me? Yeah, well, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, this is a yeah. basically what it is, is when we have an epiphany, like what I was describing, where suddenly the, the clouds have parted. When we have an epiphany like that, usually what happens then is the self comes in and goes, whoa, that was very, very cool. I want that. I want some more of that. And so then we start looking to see what we did. You know, and so I, let's see. Okay, when it happened... I was walking out the door. I was going to get the paper. I stubbed my toe. So maybe that's what it was. And so, you know, well, you get the, you, that's what I was trying to convey out. Yeah, what, what, what I came away with that from that is that uh, uh, absent-mindedness is really mindfulness. In one way. <laughs> but, you know, here's the funny thing about being absent-minded. When the... When, you're right in a sense. The problem with it is it's sort of um, we we can't depend on it. It's just going to show up when it shows up. You know, when we just kind of get spaced out, we might have one of those kinds of epiphanies, and we might not. We might also get lost in some other crazy story. But it's true. Absent-mindedness, if you take it literally, absent mind. Yeah, when the mind stops. That's what you have. So, yeah. Yeah, Matt. Just a comment on that is those kinds of epiphanies can happen when you're doing deliberate spiritual practice, too, where you're being very mindful. Right. And then you think that, well, I can repeat that the next time I sit down and it doesn't work the same way. Exactly. And that actually, for, for folks that are on the spiritual path, that's a sneaky one. That one really gets us. And, and then so, so once you have, I mean, I know people that, had, that when they first were meditating, they had this grand epiphany. It's like a Gnostic flash. And then they spent the next 20 years trying to find it again through doing all kinds of spiritual practices. It's the striving itself that obscures that. that, that and, it, and it gets quite subtle. Subtle movement of the mind. It's beneath all of the, the you know superficial stuff. There's this subtle thing that is not content 
with what is. It cannot appreciate fully the magic of this moment, the magic of being just present. Because when we're just present, we're not striving, then the whole thing uh, changes for us. So thank you for that, Matt. Yeah, Mara. Well, as, um, I, I thought what you had to say about belief and certainty, I thought that was really apropos of most of our paths, but you know, it just made me think about all the times in my path when I have been certain or thought I was certain, and it didn't feel like a belief, it felt like certainty. And I just think that it's very, you know, and then later I would say, oh, <laughs> well, that was just another one of those being convinced of something. But was it? This is the question. Because sometimes when we're certain, it's the real thing. But then later we go, oh, you know, and, we, and we're starting to inject new stuff into it. Because we can't bring it back, you know. When we have, when we experience something in our life, we always think, "Well, we can bring it to this moment." Well, it's gone. It's only now. It's always just now. There is no other time. And we begin to really discover that when we, you know, when we have an experience like that. When we have an experience of certainty, it's like we then we start questioning it. And it's the mind. The mind is coming in. And it just basically does what mind does. It buries it. And this is how we get deluded in the first place. This certainty, which is our nature, it's our enlightenment, it's already here. Why don't we know that? Because we keep moving to know it, to, to, to feel better, you know, to strive to feel secure, to feel certain. So it's a funny thing. It's already there. The certainty when you question it again, it's like, it's still there. That certainty that you found, that you discovered, it's still there. Something else is happening, though, that's obscuring it. Yeah, it's like an attempt to describe it or something. Well, yeah, to ourselves. We want to understand it. You see, we want to understand things. But it isn't about understanding, and that's the part. For a lot of us, it's, that's a huge piece of this. We think it's about we're going to understand enlightenment. And it's no, not at all. It isn't something to understand. It's, it's, it's basically all of our ideas about enlightenment just disintegrate. They're gone. There's nothing left. When we stop struggling to believe something and to know something and to feel some way, it's here. And all of that is what's obscuring it. Good, good point. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Todd, I have a comment and a question. Yes. My comment is I make the distinction between belief and faith. But belief is always a distinction which is imaginary, yeah. while the faith is believing in everything. And that no matter what, it will be the way the mind is. Unquestioned faith is, is that certainty I'm talking about. Right. So there's, there's no uh, opposites in There's that. no opposite to it. Right. Absolutely. And everything's impermanent and uncertain. I totally get that. Yeah. So yeah. what happens, one of my favorite singers is Bruce Springsteen. And uh, Bruce Coburn, actually, I meant to say. Yeah. Bruce Coburn <laughs> writes uh, a song, If a tree falls in the forest, does anybody hear? So there's a reality for unobserved phenomena to occur in nature, 
even if you don't observe them, they're happening and you can find evidence of it. Oh, so it's not, it's not separate from me, but being un, uh, unseen, it's still there. So my question there is, how do you, how do you resolve that uh, further? So that's just a story right that it's still there. It's just a story. Now, I know it seems like something absolutely true, we have a set of beliefs about the, the nature of the world, and we can base it on all kinds of solid understandings. We have lots of it. We can base it on lots of experiential understanding, but all of that is a story. It's like a dream. Well, if somebody else saw the tree fell, and you saw the tree and said, yeah, I saw that fall a week ago, I was right here. It's not like we're denying what you say, that, that a, the tree must have made a sound in the forest. <clears throat> Within the world of our day-to-day, like going to work, if we aren't aware of things happening, causal relationships, then we're, we're lost. We can't function. It's not that we're denying those things. What I'm speaking about is recognizing thought as thought. So I have a story about a tree fell in the forest. I recognize that as just a thought. It's thought. Can you verify it, really? What are you looking at when you look at the tree that's laying on the ground? We don't know what that is. We don't know what this is. We call this a hand. But is that what this is? We don't know. In fact, we don't know what any of this is. But we have labels, we have stories, we have beliefs about all of it. And, and this is the point. It's not about getting rid of the beliefs. We're not trying to say all beliefs are bad or, or something to be gotten rid of at all. We acknowledge them in the relative world of form. But within the absolute, we discover that they are just imaginary distinctions. And we see that. So, short of doing the practice and discovering it for ourselves, the conversation is flawed. But this kind of talk is useful because it's pointing to something that then you can go and look into it for your own. You can say, well, yeah, I know what wood is. I know what a tree is. But when you get right down to it, I don't know. Do you know what a tree is? I mean, really? Aside from science, you see, science tells us, gives us all kinds of labels and stories, and they're wonderful, and they're very precise. But in the end, science has come up with more questions than it ever has had before. I mean, the questions that come up with science, the more you know, the more you don't know. Um, well, it's, it's kind of like a gentleman's agreement. Everything is a gentleman's agreement. There you go. Let's all call that a tree. And then um, that'll be a kind of a rule about that. And it, that's kind of like going to a play. You know, when everyone goes to a play, they go in and everyone agrees to um, believe that there's a war going on the stage, on the stage or there's a, a love story or a family argument. And then everyone gets uh, wrapped up in that, and and then they feel it in their hearts, and everyone's crying in the audience, 
you know, and um, so it's just like that. It is like that. It is. It's an agreement. I like how um, Adyashanti says there's no such thing as a true thought. And so, you know, when we go into this thing about, you know, there was a tree, there was a sound, there wasn't. It's like when we want to say, well, okay, there wasn't a tree that fell. I mean, that's just the same. That's just the opposite. There was no tree. There was no sound. Right. Exactly. Thought, you know, You're just going in a circle. You're just going in a circle. And that's the thing, you see. You can't actually verify anything in the past. So if you go out and you see a tree, then you walk away from that, you have what? A thought. You have a thought in your mind. You don't, you don't have a tree. You have a thought. And it's a, it's a perception. It's a story. It's a tree. But what you saw, where is it? You have to go back to it. And then when you are there, you're touching it. Yes, yes. Okay, now I remember. And then when you walk away, as soon as, you, as, soon as it's out of consciousness, it's gone. And that's a practice issue. It sounds a little nutty. For those of you that don't do practice, if there's anyone like that here, um, this will all sound really nutty and it'll sound like I need to maybe be carted off to that little room. <laughs> Questions? Yes? Well, I'm, I'm thinking, and this is probably going to sound like self-pity, and it, I think it is. <laughs> yeah, I, it brings back brings thoughts of 2001 Space Odyssey in the beginning where these monkeys are running around with this monument, which was the beginning, I guess, of something different than them or more powerful than them that probably was a seed somewhere that um, started, I think, maybe religion or whatever. But we are we were brought into this earth with no choice, to, to my knowledge, of, from what we know. And, um, and I, it's just difficult. I, I took a very windy, twisted road to get where I am. I don't look back, how did I get here? And it seems to be fit for me. But um, it's like accidental. It's like random. Because it's so few that, uh, if you read the mystics and so forth, they even reach a point. And I know, like Joel says, eventually we just, you're, you're, it's kind of maddening to know that I'm enlightened. I go, what? I, I don't feel enlightened, whatever this, I'm trying to be and working on it. And then I'm striving. I'm not supposed to do that. And... It's confusing, and it's, um, I feel, yeah, self-pity. Oh, no! <laughs> well, we, we don't, we're born in this life, but in our, this destiny is what we are, this conditioned person. Except for one thing. What is looking through those eyes right now? There are all these things, and there are these imaginary distinctions arising. Even this phase is an imaginary distinction. It's consciousness, pure consciousness. That's what's looking through your eyes. But as long as you kind of revel in that, that story of, oh, it's just, I'm, it's just, I'm, I'm never going to understand it. I'll never get there. You want to see that. And you want to see the way that the mind wants that so badly. And that's it. You just let it be. And then the mind goes, yeah, but that isn't going to bring me enlightenment. You just be aware of that. That's more grasping. As long as the mind is grasping in that way, it never wakes up. Because it's constantly creating the, the veil to the enlightenment that is already there. But you can't see it because you want it. If I tell you to sit down right now, you can't do it. 
right? Because you're already sitting and you can't get there. You can't sit down. Trying to find your enlightenment creates the same kind of confusion in the mind about trying to do something that you're already doing creates this turbulence. But when the turbulence stops, when you just allow the, the desire to be awake, to just be there, oh, I'm just miserable, oh, be aware of the misery, be aware of that, and let it, yeah, but yeah, you see, this is it, it's like, there's, there's another piece of it that you're not aware of. When you're aware of grasping, then you go, oh, you know, I'm, I'm feeling miserable. I'm, I want things to be different. I want to be happy. Okay, I'm seeing that. But I'm, I'm still wanting it. So you see that. It keeps coming up. It'll come up in different phases because it's conditioned. It has this mechanistic quality. When you start seeing it as mechanistic, you start realizing, this isn't me. This is, it's like a machine. It's happening by itself. It's conditioned. You see the grasping itself. I want, I want, I want. And so you identify with it. I want to be enlightened. That thought is just happening by itself. If you notice that, and you allow the attention to be sublime, to see all of the little ways that it's grasping, after a while, you just get mute. You're done. You basically become that sublime attention. You just become that because there's nothing else to do. Every time it starts to grasp, you notice it. And when you notice it, you see it's nothing. What happens? That's awakeness. All right. That's probably enough for this morning. (laughs) Till next time. Peace. Thank you, Todd.